Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Florence Roman smiled from the front seat of the family car. It was the kind of beautiful summer morning that made it impossible to feel anything but cheerful. Her husband, Jean-Claude, hummed absentmindedly in the driver's seat. The children, Caroline and Antoine, were laughing and singing in the back. Everyone was ready for the best vacation of their lives. As they approached the city, the children shouted excitedly from the back seat. They wanted to see where Daddy worked. Florence smiled. It was sweet how much they looked up to their father, and even sweeter how Jean-Claude gave in to them. He tried to say no at first, but when they begged, he folded and agreed to the detour. Soon, they arrived at the headquarters of the World Health Organization in Geneva. Jean-Claude pulled into the parking lot and gestured up to a row of windows. He told the children that his office was up there. The children cheered. They wanted to go inside and see it for themselves. All of a sudden, Jean-Claude turned cold. He brusquely told them not to get out of the car. Florence watched the building shrink in the rear view. She would have liked to see his office too. She wondered why on earth her husband was so secretive about his work. In most respects, he was so candid, it was almost boring. But when it came to his job, he refused to open up. It made Florence wonder if her husband was hiding something. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. This week, we'll uncover the truth behind the many lies of Jean-Claude Ramon. On the surface, he seemed like a normal family man, living a quiet life with his family in the French village of Prévisal. Nobody suspected that he was hiding the true source of his income and a secret love life for nearly two decades. Next week, we'll see how Jean-Claude's lies unraveled. When he could no longer maintain his charade, he snapped, unleashing a tragic and deadly act of violence. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Jean-Claude Ramon grew up in Clairvaux, Lévac a small village in eastern France. Though his childhood was relatively normal, he later said that he was deeply unhappy as a boy. He was reluctant to tell his parents about his depression because he was afraid of disappointing them. He said, I'm sure they would have been willing to listen to me, but I wasn't able to speak. Jean-Claude's father worked in forestry and encouraged his son to follow in his footsteps. After Jean-Claude completed high school in 1971, he enrolled at the Institut National Agronomique at the age of 17, but he didn't stay there for long. Though he never specified exactly what happened, Jean-Claude claimed he was subjected to bullying and left school before the end of his first year there. He didn't explain to his parents what happened either. Instead, he told them he had to move back home because he was suffering from severe sinus infections. From his parents' house, he took correspondence courses while pretending to be too sick to go back to his classes. By the end of his first year home, Jean-Claude had enough of feigning sickness. He left his parents' house, but didn't go back to the agricultural school. He decided to pursue an education in medicine instead. Although Jean-Claude had never expressed any interest in becoming a doctor before, he suddenly seemed drawn to the prestige of a medical career. The change brought him closer to someone familiar, a distant cousin by marriage, who was also studying medicine at the university in Lyon. Her name was Florence Collet. Florence and Jean-Claude had known each other since they were young. Florence's parents adored him and asked 21-year-old Jean-Claude to look out for her while the two were at university together. Jean-Claude jumped at the chance to get closer to Florence. He even made a habit of escorting her to and from the train station when she traveled home on weekends. He had been in love with her since he was 14 years old. He believed they were meant to be together. Florence didn't reciprocate his feelings at first. She thought he was fairly dull and wasn't physically attracted to him. According to her roommates at the time, she found him more annoying than charming. But Jean-Claude managed to endear himself to one of Florence's closest friends, a handsome and popular student named Luc L'Admiral. 
The studious Jean-Claude got on Luke's good side by loaning him his class notes. Luke appreciated Jean-Claude's generosity and may have convinced Florence to give him a chance. In 1975, during their second year of school, Florence finally agreed to date Jean-Claude. It was the first romantic relationship of his life. For Jean-Claude, being with Florence was a dream come true. But not long after they started dating, she reconsidered their relationship. That same spring, she told Jean-Claude that she wanted some space. They both were prepping for their year-end exams, and she claimed she was too busy studying to focus on romance. Jean-Claude was distraught. Jean-Claude stared at the drawn curtains of his studio apartment. He couldn't remember the last time he had opened them. He hated to be reminded that life outside was still going on. The fact that people were still going about their days, oblivious to his pain, hurt him all the more. His seclusion made him feel strangely dissociated from the world and even from his own feelings. It was as if he wasn't a real person anymore. He had abdicated from humanity. Nothing he did mattered. There were so many things that once seemed important. His routines, his studies, his friendships. Without Florence, they were all immaterial. And so was he. At the end of the school year, 21-year-old Jean-Claude was scheduled to sit for his final exam. Up until then, he had done well in school. There was no reason to think he wouldn't move on to his third year. But on the day of the test, Jean-Claude never showed up. He couldn't explain the lapse, but was able to schedule a makeup exam for the following September. During the summer in between, Jean-Claude continued to brood over Florence. She had failed her final exam and had decided to switch her focus to pharmacology instead. Even though she had used her rigorous medical course load as an excuse to end things with Jean-Claude, she didn't change her mind about their relationship after the switch in majors. They remained separated but couldn't fully escape each other. They both saw the same groups of friends and so gossip followed them everywhere. Around this time, Jean-Claude behaved oddly. One summer night, while he was out at a club, he told friends he was leaving to buy some cigarettes but disappeared for hours. When he finally rejoined the group, he was disheveled and his shirt was stained with blood. He told his friend Luke that he had been attacked by a group of men. He said they threatened him with a gun, forced him into the trunk of his own car and gone joyriding. Then they'd abruptly abandoned him and the car 30 miles outside the city. Jean-Claude's friends urged him to go to the police he said he would, but never reported the incident. Years later, Jean-Claude would admit that the story was probably made up. He said, Of course, I have no memory of an actual attack. I know it didn't happen, but I don't remember faking it either, tearing my shirt or scratching myself. If I think about it, I tell myself I must have done that, but I don't recall it and I wound up believing that I'd really been attacked. Jean-Claude likely lied to gain attention and sympathy from his peers, but he didn't just tell lies to trick others. He was apparently trying to fool himself as well. Before I continue with Jean-Claude's psychology, 
please note that I am not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to the article, Pathological Lying Revisited, from the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, the most commonly quoted definition of a pathological lie is a falsification entirely disproportionate to any discernible end in view that may be extensive and very complicated, manifesting over a period of years or even a lifetime. These lies can very quickly snowball. The authors of this same article also state that the pathological liar may become a prisoner of his or her lies, the desired personality of the pathological liar may overwhelm the actual one. For Jean-Claude, the lies were just beginning. In the fall of 1975, the students returned to school to begin a new semester. Jean-Claude was supposed to attend his makeup exam, but again, he missed it. He later gave more than one excuse for his absence. First, he claimed that he'd broken his wrist a few days prior to the exam, making it impossible to write out the answers. This explanation isn't very credible, since he still could have gotten permission to dictate his answers. But Jean-Claude has also given another reason. He said that on the morning of the exam, he received a letter from a woman who he had romantically rejected. She wrote that she intended to commit suicide and would already be dead by the time he read her note. Jean-Claude claimed that he was so shaken up by the letter that he couldn't leave the apartment. Nobody has been able to verify this account. Whatever happened, Jean-Claude missed his makeup exam in September of 1975, yet he lied to everyone, telling them he had taken the test. He told his parents that the test had gone well, when results were posted, he told everyone he'd passed. He informed his friends and family that he was moving on to his third year of school. It was surprisingly easy to fool everyone. Although the university wouldn't allow Jean-Claude to enroll as a third-year student, they did allow him to re-enroll as a second year. That way, he could stay on campus, use the library, and convince the world that he was continuing his studies. But Jean-Claude didn't go back to school right away. He was too afraid that his lies would be discovered. So for the first few months of the new semester, he stayed in his apartment, rarely leaving. When his friends didn't see him on campus, they became worried. Finally, shortly before Christmas of 1975, Luc Ladmiral paid him a visit to see if he was all right. Instead of confessing the truth, Jean-Claude told him that he had been diagnosed with cancer. With this gambit, Jean-Claude won the sympathy of his peers, including Florence. The couple soon reunited. Perhaps Florence thought Jean-Claude was brave to be battling cancer while maintaining his difficult course load. She had no idea that he was lying about both. After getting away with the cancer lie, Jean-Claude regained his confidence. He started attending third-year classes along with his peers and even resumed his habit of sharing notes. He pretended to study for exams, even though he never took them. He knew that if he did actually sit for his third-year exam, the university would discover his ploy. When his third year ended, he re-enrolled once again as a second-year student. 
there was no rule preventing him from registering as a second-year student as many times as he liked. Since his parents were funding his education, he continued to enroll again and again. By the end of their fourth year, Jean-Claude and Florence's relationship had gotten serious. Florence fell in love with him. She could look past his unremarkable looks and occasionally boring personality because he was sweet and dependable. After two years of dating, they got engaged. In 1980, they married and five years later, they had their first child, Caroline. Now a young husband and father, 26-year-old Jean-Claude's phony medical school career was coming to an end. He had re-registered as a second-year student 12 times in total to give the illusion that he finished the program, which typically took at least nine years to complete. The one time a school administrator became suspicious and called Jean-Claude in for a meeting, he never showed up. Apparently, nobody ever followed up with him to reschedule. In 1986, 32-year-old Jean-Claude pretended to graduate. Florence helped him study for the medical board exam, and despite not having an official medical school degree, he passed. As far as the world was concerned, Jean-Claude Ramon was a doctor. Now, he just had to figure out how to keep up appearances. Coming up, Jean-Claude steps into the role of the perfect family man as his lies multiply. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1986, 32-year-old Jean-Claude Ramon had conned everyone, including his new wife, Florence, into believing that he had graduated from medical school. In reality, he had never taken any exams after his first year of university. He had attended most of the courses and had even scored highly on his medical board exam, but didn't actually have a degree. He might have had a successful career as a doctor if he hadn't gotten so tangled in a web of lies a decade prior. But by now, coming clean was out of the question for Jean-Claude. He was in too deep. He couldn't reckon with his past, and despite having no future plans, he was determined to continue lying. Once he left school, he invented a new identity for himself. The first step was to convince everyone that he was a devoted husband and father. With a wife and baby at home, Jean-Claude's first priority was providing for his family. His parents had given him access to their bank accounts while he was at university, and he continued to spend their money after graduating. His parents had always doted on him. They didn't think to cut him off even after Jean-Claude told them that he'd got a new job as a research assistant at the National Institute of Health and Medical Research in Lyon. He pretended to work there for a short time, then claimed to have found a position with the World Health Organization, or WHO. He was able to generate some income by selling his Lyon apartment. 
His parents had bought it for him in the first place, but he kept the profit for himself. Jean-Claude and Florence moved to Fernay Voltaire, a French town close to the Swiss border. It was the ideal place to settle, close to family and friends. Florence and Jean-Claude's medical school friend, Luke, also lived there with his family. Since it was just 20 minutes outside the Swiss capital of Geneva, where the Who is headquartered, Jean-Claude had an easy commute, despite the fact that he didn't actually have a real job to go to. Florence boasted to friends that her husband studied important medicines at Who and taught part-time at the University of Dijon. These friends were all the more impressed that Jean-Claude rarely talked about his work. They assumed he was too modest to brag. In reality, Jean-Claude spent his days doing almost nothing. He traveled to Who headquarters each morning and parked in the visitor garage. Once in Geneva, he spent the day reading in Who's library, which was open to the public. Or he'd go to a cafe. If he was bored, he'd take a stroll in the park or a window shop at the nearby storefronts until it was time to return home. At times, he pretended to attend conferences or events out of town. On these occasions, he'd leave his car at the Geneva airport and find a nearby hotel to stay in for a few days and watch TV. His wife was perhaps baffled by the fact that she could never reach her husband at the office. He gave her an answering service to call rather than a business number. She may have wondered why he rarely discussed his work or why he never invited the family to office holiday parties or functions. But she didn't ask too many questions. After all, Jean-Claude was the most reserved, milquetoast man she knew. The idea that he was faking his entire career was too outlandish for anyone to even consider. Jean-Claude managed to keep his secret from everyone, not daring to tell a soul about his lies. But as his deceptions multiplied, so did the potential consequences. Jean-Claude knew that nobody would ever look at him the same if they knew the truth, so he desperately tried to cover it up. After setting up his phony job, his first task was to find a way to make some money. He and Florence lived fairly simply in a small two-bedroom apartment. They got by on Florence's pharmacist salary for a while, but Jean-Claude knew it was only a matter of time before she would start to question his lack of a paycheck. Jean-Claude again turned to his parents. He told them that he was privy to certain investment opportunities in Switzerland and promised an 18% return on any money they put in. They happily entrusted their son with their retirement fund. When Jean-Claude's uncle heard about it, he wanted in on the opportunity too. He gave his nephew tens of thousands of francs to invest. Jean-Claude funneled all the money toward his own living expenses instead, and he didn't stop at swindling his blood relatives. Around the same time, Florence told him about her own uncle who was dying of cancer. Jean-Claude claimed he had access to a potential miracle drug at WHO, but it could only be purchased for 15,000 francs per pill. Florence's desperate uncle gave Jean-Claude money for several fraudulent treatments, which naturally did nothing. He died a year later. Jean-Claude had charged him tens of thousands of francs for a placebo. 
Jean-Claude tried to summon some kind of emotion as Florence tearfully informed him of her uncle's passing. But all he felt was apprehension. He didn't like the way Florence was looking at him. Her eyes were filled with a gratitude he didn't deserve. She thought Jean-Claude had done his best to help her uncle, when all he'd done was rob the man. Jean-Claude struggled to smile back at his wife. Maybe he was being hard on himself. It wasn't like he'd given the man cancer, and he had given a family hope. Didn't a condemned man deserve a little bit of optimism? It might have been what made the last few months bearable. The more he pretended, the better Jean-Claude felt. He had nothing to be ashamed of. Selling the pills was a good idea. And now that he thought about it, he wasn't even sure if it had even been his idea in the first place. Wasn't Florence the one who had encouraged her uncle to seek the experimental treatment? That sounded right. It wasn't his fault. He repeated this over and over. Things were out of his control. He told himself he could rest easy. His conscience was clear. Jean-Claude successfully painted himself as a generous and decent man to the outside world, but his actions were becoming more depraved, and he was far from hitting bottom. Years later, Jean-Claude was diagnosed as a narcissist. His actions during these years certainly fit the pattern. Journalist Jessica Pressler delved into the characteristics of a narcissist while writing about the white-collar criminal Bernie Madoff. Like Jean-Claude Ramon, Madoff committed fraud, bilking investors out of their life savings. Pressler wrote, His gestures are ostensibly to help other people, but it's really all about him and how he wants himself to be perceived. Author and researcher Maria Konnikova has affirmed this characterization in an article for Slate. She writes, Narcissism entails a sense of grandiosity, entitlement, self-enhancement, an overly inflated sense of worth and manipulativeness. A narcissist will do what it takes to preserve his image, even if it means resorting to deception. For now, Jean-Claude continued to foster his reputation as a good family man. In 1987, Florence and 33-year-old Jean-Claude had their second child, Antoine. Around the same time, Florence's father, Pierre, retired and received a bonus of 400,000 francs. He had likely heard about how Jean-Claude was cleverly investing his own parents' money and asked his son-in-law to do the same for him. Jean-Claude agreed and added the money to his stockpile. But about a year later, in the fall of 1988, Pierre reached out to Jean-Claude asking to withdraw some of his money for a new car. Jean-Claude panicked. Most of the money was spent already. It seemed as if his fake life was finally about to come crashing down around him. A few weeks later, Jean-Claude made a visit to his in-law's house where he and Pierre spent some time alone together. At some point, according to Jean-Claude, Pierre slipped and fell down the stairs. He died just before the ambulance arrived. Jean-Claude later insisted that it was an accident, a coincidence. At the time, nobody had any reason to doubt him. Jean-Claude did his best to provide comfort and solace to his wife and mother-in-law in their grief. Florence's mother decided to sell her house and move to a smaller place. 
She trusted Jean-Claude to manage the 1.3 million francs she earned from the sale. Soon after Jean-Claude took the money, the family moved from their small apartment in Fernay Voltaire. They relocated a few short miles away to a spacious farmhouse in the nearby village of Prévisaw. As he settled in the countryside, Jean-Claude continued to search for new victims to rip off. Around this time, he became acquainted with a woman named Corinne Houtin. Corinne and her husband Rémy were an outgoing and attractive couple who lived near Jean-Claude and Florence's friend from college, Luc Ladmiral. Luc introduced the couple to all his friends, including the Romans. Corinne and Rémy soon became part of their social circle. Although they were popular, both Corinne and Rémy developed a reputation for philandering. When Corinne asked for a divorce and moved to Paris, many of the couple's friends took Rémy's side, painting Corinne as a flirtatious femme fatale. Florence Roman felt this was unfair. As far as she was concerned, the couple's marital problems were none of her business. She didn't feel the need to judge one any harsher than the other. She was annoyed at the sanctimonious attitude of the rest of her friends and wanted to show support for Corinne. When she and Jean-Claude took a trip to Paris, she called Corinne and invited her to join them for dinner. Florence didn't realize it, but at that dinner, something sparked between Corinne and her husband. Soon, Jean-Claude would add an affair to the list of secrets he was keeping from his wife. Coming up, Jean-Claude pursues a new love with tragic results. Now, back to the story. By the spring of 1990, 36-year-old Jean-Claude Ramon had been living a lie for 15 years. He had convinced everyone around him, his parents, his friends, and his wife, Florence, that he was a doctor working for the World Health Organization. In reality, he had no job at all. His income came entirely from cheating relatives out of their savings. Jean-Claude would later say that the only authentic thing about himself was his feelings for his wife and children. Whatever else was phony, he insisted that the emotional part was true. But his supposed love for Florence didn't stop him from becoming infatuated with one of her friends, a woman named Corinne Orton. One evening, Jean-Claude and Florence paid her a visit while on vacation in Paris. Corinne was delighted to see her old friends. She showed them her new apartment and accepted their invitation to dinner. At the restaurant, Corinne was her usual cheerful, outgoing self. The residents of their provincial town may have found her flirtatious attitude too provocative, but Jean-Claude thought she was captivating. Three weeks after that visit, Jean-Claude pretended to take a business trip to Paris. When he got there, he sent Corinne an expensive bouquet of flowers and asked her to dinner. Corinne accepted, believing the invite to be another supportive show of friendship. That night, Jean-Claude did his best to impress her. He told her all about his fabricated career as an international research scientist. He also indicated that he would soon be up for an even more impressive promotion. It worked. 
Corinne, who was a psychologist herself, was pleased to meet a man who seemed to be on her professional and intellectual level. But knowing that Jean-Claude was married, she assumed that he only had a platonic interest in her. Shortly after this, Corinne and Jean-Claude had dinner together again. She was surprised at the end of the night when he told her he was in love with her. This confession made Corinne angry. She had believed that Jean-Claude was different from the usual philandering men she encountered. She told him she wasn't interested and sent him back to his hotel. The next day, Jean-Claude sent her a note of apology, along with an exquisite gold, emerald, and diamond ring. The gift softened Corinne and she agreed to see him again. At some point soon after that, their relationship turned sexual. From then on, Jean-Claude traveled to Paris at least one night a week, telling his wife that he was doing research at the Pasteur Institute. His nights in the capital were extravagant. He started dressing in expensive suits, staying in four-star hotels, and lavishing Corinne with gifts and pricey dinners. It was all just part of the lie. Jean-Claude was putting on a mask, just as he did when he pretended to be a stable family man. He had a knack for becoming what people wanted, and he lied to Corinne the way he lied to everyone else. Even she believed that his main reason for coming to Paris was for research rather than to sleep with her. Jean-Claude later claimed that a part of him longed to tell someone the truth around this time. He rehearsed how he was going to confess and imagined how they might react. He knew he couldn't reveal everything. He knew that would make him a monster. But after 15 years, perhaps his lies were starting to get to him. Not long after he started seeing Corinne, he stopped at the home of his friend from medical school, Luke Ladmiral. He was in a panic and told Luke he was worried he was having a heart attack. After examining him, Luke told him it was probably anxiety. Jean-Claude then confessed to Luke about his affair with Corinne. Luke, who was close with Jean-Claude's wife, Laurence, was angry but he reserved most of his rage for Corinne. He didn't think his mild-mannered friend could have been the instigator of such an affair. He considered Jean-Claude to be a victim and advised him to end the relationship. Jean-Claude took his friend's words to heart. In August 1990, the 36-year-old went on a trip to Rome with Corinne. Their accounts of what happened on that trip differ, but they apparently came to an agreement that it would be better to stop seeing one another. Corinne reportedly told him that she wasn't in love with him because she found him too sad. After his affair ended, Jean-Claude joined Florence and the children on a visit to his parents' house. His mood was sour. He was heartbroken over losing Corinne and was more anxious than ever about his finances. His reckless spending in Paris was finally catching up to him. While staying in his home village, Jean-Claude went into the woods one morning and tried to leap into a gorge to his death. But his fall was broken by some branches on the way down. He was not seriously hurt and at first told Florence the injuries were from a car accident. But later that night, he broke down in tears in front of his wife. 
He told her he had accidentally gotten into the crash because he was so distraught. His boss at the World Health Organization had recently passed away from cancer. Perhaps because this explanation was unconvincing, a few months later, Jean-Claude then revived another lie from his past. 15 years earlier, when he was 21 years old, he had told friends that he was being treated for cancer. Now, at 36 years old, Jean-Claude told Florence that the cancer had returned. He refused to let her accompany him to his treatments. His family thought he was just being brave, trying to spare everyone the pain of seeing him sick. The phony disease gave him an easy excuse for the depression and anxiety he really felt. It also allowed him to stop the charade of going to work every day. Claiming to be too exhausted to go to the office, he passed the time at home. He often spent the morning placing phone calls to Corinne and hanging up before she picked up the phone. One day, she answered his call. After about four months apart, she let Jean-Claude know that she missed him. Suddenly, their flirtation was reignited. Jean-Claude began taking trips to Paris to see her again. In January, they went on a vacation together in Russia, but apparently the trip didn't go well. Jean-Claude acted secretive and standoffish. A few days into the vacation, Corinne announced that it was a mistake for them to get back together. They parted ways when they returned to France. A few weeks later, he happened to hear from her ex-husband that she had begun seeing someone else. Jean-Claude was devastated. He reached out to her and tried to gain her sympathy by telling her about his cancer. This had perhaps worked on Florence before, but sympathy wasn't enough this time. Corinne told him she only wanted to be friends. They stayed in touch through occasional phone calls. During one conversation, Corinne mentioned that she had come into some money after selling some property she owned with her ex-husband. She now had 900,000 francs that she didn't know what to do with. Jean-Claude told her he'd be happy to invest it for her, just like he'd helped his relatives invest their assets. Corinne trusted him. She handed over her money, just like everyone else. The windfall came just in time for Jean-Claude, as he was nearly broke. But instead of being careful with his stolen money, Jean-Claude became even more reckless. He splurged on massages twice a month, claiming he needed the sessions to assure himself that he actually existed. There were times when he didn't feel real. If his wife, Florence, suspected anything was wrong, she never mentioned it. She seemed content with her family. In fact, in the fall of 1992, she went off birth control and told her doctor that she was thinking about getting pregnant again. Meanwhile, Jean-Claude lived in dread of the moment when his money would run out again. Jean-Claude withdrew a few hundred francs from the ATM. He felt his whole body tense as the machine spit out a receipt. He crumpled the paper without looking at the balance. Whatever the number was, he couldn't face it. He knew without even seeing it that he was in trouble. Jean-Claude hunched his shoulders and hurried down the sidewalk. His stomach twisted in knots. He was used to the anxiety now. He'd lived with it for years. 
Even so, the shrinking numbers in his bank account felt like a countdown to his judgment day. When it hit zero, it was time for a reckoning. He had no explanations and no plausible excuses. If Laurence found out, she would know beyond a doubt that he was a fraud. Luckily for Jean-Claude, Florence wasn't in the habit of checking up on their finances, but he knew he wouldn't be able to hide it if their bank accounts were overdrawn. Yet even then, he couldn't stop himself from spending or lying. He was out of control. Most narcissists are deeply afraid of failure, of being exposed as imperfect. Psychologist Ben Sorotskin discussed this in a 1985 article where he wrote, Perfectionism in the narcissist personality is less related to morals and ideals. Rather, it is an attempt by the individual to live up to a grandiose self-image in order to avoid humiliation and shame and the loss of admiration. When the eventual collapse of this self-image comes, it can be destructive. Dr. Sorotskin added, the inevitable failure to live up to the perfectionistic standards results in profound shame and narcissistic rage. Jean-Claude Ramon lived in constant fear that his lies would catch up with him and the shame that would follow. He knew that he needed to find a way out, but couldn't figure out how to come clean without destroying his reputation. For nearly two decades, Jean-Claude had kept the depths of his deception secret from everyone in his life. As his 17th year of lies drew to a close, nobody could have imagined the violent plan forming in his mind. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. For more information on Jean-Claude Roman amongst the many sources we used, we found The Adversary by Emmanuel Carrere extremely helpful to our research. We will be back Wednesday with part two of Jean-Claude Roman's story. When the walls closed in on Jean-Claude, he lashed out in an explosive confrontation. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.